Welcome back to another episode of Rejects Book Club. It's me, Constance. I'm here to read you a chapter a day. Oh, disclaimer, I missed a few days because I've been painting murals in Soho, beautifying my city, New York. What up, though, Detroit? I love you, too. Um, so, yeah, anyway, back on track. The Last Unicorn, Chapter 13, by Peter S. Beagle. Okay, let's go. The way was wide enough for all of them to walk abreast, but they went one by one. The Lady Amalthea walked in front by her own choosing. Prince Lear, Smendrick, and Molly Grew following had only her hair for a lantern, but she herself had no light before her at all. Yet, she went on as easily as though she'd been this way before. Where they truly were, they never knew. The cold wind seemed real, as did the cold reek that rode it, and the darkness let them pass far more grudgingly than had the clock. The path itself was enough of effect to bruise feet and to be partly choked in places by real stones and real earth that it crumbled down the sides of the cave. But its course was the impossible way of a dream, pitched and skewed, round on itself, now dropping almost sheer, now seeming to rise a little, now working out and slowly down, and now wandering back to take them, perhaps, once again, below to the great hall where old King Haggard must still be raging over a toppled clock and a shivering skull, which works surely, Smendrick thought, and nothing made by which is real at the last. Then he added, but this might be the last. It will all be real enough if this is not the last. As they stumbled along, he hurriedly told Prince Lear the tale of their adventures, beginning with his own strange history and stranger doom recounting the ruin of the Midnight Carnival and his flight with the unicorn and continuing through their meeting with Molly Grew, the journey to Hagsgate and Dren's story of the double curse and the town and the tower. Here he halted, for beyond lay the night of the Red Bull, of night that ended, for good or ill, with magic and with a naked girl who struggled in her own body like a cow in quicksand. He hoped that the prince would be more interested in learning of his heroic birth than the origins of Lady Amalthea. Prince Lear marvels suspiciously, which is an awkward thing to manage. I've known for a very long time that the king is not my father, he said, but I tried hard to be his son all the time. I am the, I'm the enemy of any who plots against him and it would take more than a crone's gibbering to make, to make me work his downfall. As for the others, I think there are no unicorns anymore, and I know that King Hagger has never seen one. How could any man who had looked upon a unicorn even once, let alone thousands with every tie, possibly be as sad as King Haggard is? Why, if I'd only seen her once, and, and never again, now he himself paused in some confusion for he also felt that the talk was going on to some sorrow from which it could never be called back. Molly's neck and shoulders were listening intently, but if the Lady Amalthea could hear what the two men were saying, she gave no sign. Yet, the king has a joy hidden somewhere about his life, Smendrick pointed out. Have you never seen a trace of it, truly? Never seen it track in his eyes? I have. Think for a moment. Prince Lear? 
The prince was silent, and they wound further into the foul dark. They could not always tell whether they were climbing or descending, nor, sometimes, if the passage were bending once again, until the gnarly nearness of stone at their shoulders suddenly became the bleak rake of a wall against their faces. There was not the smallest sound of the red bull or any glimmer of the wicked light, but when Smendrick touched his damp face, the smell of the bull came off his fingers. Prince Lear said, Sometimes, when he's been up in the tower, there's something in his face, not a light exactly, but a clearness. I remember. I was little, and he never looked like that when he looked at me or anything else. And I had a dream. He was walking very slowly now, scuffling his feet. I used to have a dream, he said. The same dream over and over, about standing in my window in the middle of the night and seeing the bull, seeing the red bull. He did not finish. Seeing the bull driving unicorns into the sea, Smendrick said. It was no dream. Hagger has them all now, drifting in and out, on the tides for his delight, all but one. The magician drew a deep breath. <sighs> that one is the Lady Amalthea. Yes, Prince Lear answered him. Yes, I know. Smendrick stared at him. What do you mean you know? He demanded angrily. How could you possibly know that the Lady Amalthea is a unicorn? She can't have told you because she doesn't even remember herself. Since you took her fancy, she is thought only of being mortal, a mortal woman. He knew quite well that the truth was the other way around, but it made no difference to him just then. How do you know? He asked again. Prince Lear stopped walking and turned to face him. It was too dark for Smendrick to see anything but the cool, milky shining where his wide eyes were. I did not know what she was until now, he said. But I knew the first time when I saw her that she was something more that I can see. Unicorn, mermaid, lamia, sorceress, gor gorgon. No name, you give her would no name you give her would surprise me or frighten me. I love who I love. That's a very nice sentiment, Smendrick said. But when I change her back into her true self so that she may do battle with the Red Bull and free her people, I love who I love, Prince Lear repeated firmly. You have no power over anything that matters. Before the magician could reply, the Lady Amalthea was standing between them. Though neither man had seen or heard her as she came back along the passageway in the darkness, she gleamed and trembled like running water. She said, I will go no further. It was a prince that she it was to the prince that she spoke. But it was Smendrick who said, There's no choice. We can only go on. Molly Grew came nearer, one anxious eye, and the pale start of a cheekbone. The magician said again, We can only go on. The Lady Amalthea would not look straight at him. He must not change me she said to Prince Lear. Do not let him work his magic on me. The bull has no care for human beings. We may walk out past him and get away. It is a unicorn the bull wants. Tell him not to change me into a unicorn. Prince Lear twisted his fingers until they cracked. Smendrick said, it is true. We might very well escape the red bull that way, even now, as we escaped before. But if we do, there will never be another chance. All the unicorns in the world will remain his prisoners forever, except one, and she will die. She will grow old and die. 
Everything dies, she said, still to Prince Lear. It is good that everything dies. I want to die when you die. Don't let them enchant me. Do not let him, do not let him make me immortal. I'm no unicorn, no magical creature. I'm a human, and I love you. He answered her, saying gently, I don't know much about enchantments, except how to break them. But I know that even the very greatest of wizards are powerless against two who keep to each other. And this one is only poor Smendrick, after all. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of anything. Whatever you have been, you're mine now. I can hold you. She turned to look at the magician at last, and even through the darkness, he can feel the terror in her eyes. No, she said. No. We're not strong enough. He will change me, and whatever happens after that, you and I will lose each other. I will not love you when I'm a unicorn, and you will love me only because you can't help it. I will be more beautiful than anything in the world and live forever. Smendrick began to speak, but the sound of his voice made her cower like a candle flame. I will not have it. I will not have it so. She was looking back and forth from the prince to the magician, holding her voice together like the edges of a wound. She said, if there is a single moment of love when he changes me, you'll know it. For I will let the Red Bull drive me into the sea with the others. Then, at least, I'll be near you. There's no need for all that, Smendrick spoke lightly, making himself laugh. I doubt I can turn you back if I wished. Nikos himself could never turn a human into a unicorn, and you're truly human now. You can love and fear and forbid things to be what they are and overact. Let it in here, then. Let the quest end. Is the world any worse for losing the unicorns? And it would be any better if they were running free again? One good woman more in the world is worth every single unicorn gone. Let it end. Marry the prince and live happily ever after. The passageway seemed to be growing lighter, and Smendrick imagined the red bull stealing towards them, grotesquely cautious, setting his hooves down as primely as a heron, the thin glimmer of Molly Grew's cheekbones went out, and she turned her face away. Yes, said the Lady Amalthea, that is my wish. But at the same moment, Prince Lear said, no. The word escaped him as suddenly as a sneeze, emerging in a questioning speak, the voice of a silly young man mortally embarrassed by a rich and terrible gift. No, he said. And this time, the word told in another voice, a king's voice, not Haggard's but a king whose grief was not for what he did not have, but for what he could not give. My lady, he said, I'm a hero. It's a trade, no more, like weaving or brewing. And like them, it has its own tricks and knacks and small arts. There are ways of perceiving witches and of knowing poison streams. There are certain weak spots that all dragons have and certain riddles that hooded strangers tend to set to you. But the true secret of being a hero lies in knowing the order of things. The swineherd cannot already be wed to the princess when he embarks on his adventures, nor can the boy knock at the witch's door when she's away on vacation. 
The wicked uncle cannot be found out and foiled before he does something wicked. Things must happen when it's time for them to happen. Quests may not simply be abandoned. Prophecies may not be left to rot like unpicked fruit. Unicorns may go unrescued for a long time, but not forever. The happy ending cannot come in the middle of the story. The Lady Amalfia did not answer him. Smendrick said, Why not? Who says so? Heroes, Prince Lear replied sadly. Heroes know about order and about happy endings. Heroes know that some things are better than others. Carpenters know grains and shingles and straight lines. He put his hand out to the Lady Amalthea and took one step towards her. She did not draw back from him nor turn her face. Indeed, she lifted her head higher, and it was the prince who looked away. You were the one who taught me, he said. I never looked at you without seeing the sweetness of the way the world goes together or without sorrow for its spoiling. I became a hero to serve you and all that is like you, also to find some way of starting conversation. But the Lady Amalthea spoke no word to him. Pale as lime, the brightness was rising in the cavern. They could see one another clearly now, each gone tallowy and strange with fear. Even the beauty of the Lady Amalthea drained away under that dull, hungry light. She looked more mortal than any of the others. The bull is coming, Prince Lear said. He turned and set off down the passageway, taking the bold, eager strides of a hero. The Lady Amalthea followed him, walking as lightly and proudly as princesses are taught to try to walk. Molly grew stayed close to the magician, taking his hand as she had been used to touch the unicorn when she was lonely. He smiled down at her looking quite pleased with himself. Molly said, let her stay where she is. Let her be. Tell that to Lear, he replied cheerfully. Was it I who said that order is all? Was it I that said she must challenge the red bull because it will be more proper and precise that way? I'm no concern for regulated rescues and official happy endings. That's Lear. But you made him do it, she said. You know that all he wants in the world is to have her give up her quest and stay with him. And she would have done it. But you reminded him that he's a hero. And now he has to do what heroes do. He loves her. And you tricked him. I never, Smedrick said. Be quiet. He'll hear you. Molly felt herself growing lightheaded, silly with the nearness of the bull. The light and the smell had become a sticky sea in which she floundered like the unicorns, hopeless and eternal. The path was beginning to tilt downwards into the deepening light. And far ahead, Prince Lear and the Lady Amalthea went marching along to disaster as calmly as candles burning down. Molly grew snickered. She went on, I know what you did. You can't become mortal yourself until you change her back again, isn't it that? You don't care what happens to her or to the others. Just as long as you become a real magician at last, isn't it that? Well, you'll never be a real magician. Even if you change the bull into a bullfrog. Because it's still just a trick when you do it. You don't care about anything but magic. And what kind of magician is that, Smendrick? I don't feel good. I have to sit down. Smendrick must have carried her for a time. Because she was definitely not walking, and his green eyes were ringing in her head. Yeah, that's right. Nothing but magic matters to me. 
I will round up unicorns for Haggard myself. If it would heighten my power by half a hair, that's true. I've no preferences and no loyalties. I've only magic. His voice was hard and sad. Really? She asked, rocking dreamily with her terror, watching the brightness flowing by. That's awful. She was very impressed. Are you really like that? No, he said. Then, or later. No, it's not true. How could I be like that and still have all these troubles? Then he said, Molly, you have to walk now. He's there. He's there. Molly saw the horns first. The light made her cover her face, but the pale horns struck bitterly through hands and eyelids to the back of her mind. She saw Prince Lear and the Lady Amalthea standing before the horns, while the fire flourished on the walls in the cavern and soared up into the roofless dark. Prince Lear had drawn his sword, but blazed it up in his hand, and he let it fall, and it broke like ice. The red bull stamped his foot, and everyone fell down. Smendrick had thought to find the bull waiting in his lair, or in some wide place with room enough to do battle, but he had silently come up the passageway to meet them and now he stood across their sight. Not only from one burning wall to the other, but somehow in the walls themselves and beyond them, bending away forever. Yet, he was no mirage, but the Red Bull still steaming and snuffing, shaking his blind head, his jaws champed over his breath with a terrible wallowing sound. Now, now is the time. Whether I work ruin or good, great good, this is the end of it. The magician rose slowly to his feet, ignoring the bull, listening only to his cupped self as to a seashell. But no power stirred or spoke in him. He could hear nothing but the far, thin howling of emptiness against his ear, as old King Haggard must have heard it waking and sleeping and never another sound. It will not come to me. Nikos is wrong. I'm what I seem. The Lady Amalthea had stepped back a pace from the bull, but no more, and she was regarding him quietly as he pawed with his front feet and snorted great, rumbling, rainy blasts out of his vast nostrils. He seemed puzzled about her, almost foolish. He did not roar. The Lady Amalthea stood in his freezing light with her head tipped back to see all of him. Without turning her head, she put her hand out to find Prince Lear's hand. Good. Good. There's nothing I can do. I'm glad of it. The bull will let her by, and she will go away with Lear, and as right as anything. I'm only sorry about the unicorns. The prince had not yet noticed her offered hand, but in a moment he would turn and see and touch her for the first time. He will never know what she's given him, but neither will she. The rebel lord is head and charged. He came without warning, with no sound but the rip of his hooves, and, if he chose, he could have crushed all four of them in that one silent onslaught. But he let them scatter before him and flatten themselves into the wrinkled walls. And he went by without harming them, though he might easily have horned them out of their shallow shelters like so many periwinkles. Supple as fire, he turned where there was no room to turn and met them again, his muzzle almost touching the ground, his neck swelling like a wave. It was then that he roared. They fled and he followed, not as swiftly as he charged, but quickly enough to keep each one alone, friendless in the wild dark. The ground tore under their feet, and they cried out, 
but they could not even hear themselves. Every bellow of the red bull brought great sides of stones and earth shuddering down on them. And still they scrambled along like broken insects. And still he came after them. Through his mad blaring, they heard another sound, a deep whine of the castle itself as it strained at its root, drumming like a flag in the wind of its wrath. And very faintly, there drifted up the passageway, the smell of the sea. He knows. He knows. I fooled him once that way, but not again. Woman or unicorn, he will haunt her into the sea this time, as he was bidden, and no magic of mine will turn him from it. Haggard is one. So the magician thought as he ran. All hope gone for the first time in his long, strange life. The way widened suddenly and they emerged into a kind of grotto that could only have been the Red Bull's den. The stench the stench of his sleeping hung so thick and old here that it had a loathly sweetness about it. And the cave brooded, gullet red, as though his light had rubbed off on the walls and crusted in the cracks and crevices. Beyond lay the tunnel again, and the dim gleam of breaking water. The Lady Amalthea fell as irrevocably as a flower breaks. Smendrick leaped to one side, wheeling to drag Molly Grew with him. They brought up hard against a slab of rock, and there they crouched together as the Red Bull raged without turning. But he came to a halt between one stride and the next, and the sudden stillness broken only by the bull's breathing and the distant grinding of the sea, would have been absurd, but for the cause of it. She lay on her side, with one leg bent beneath her. She moved slowly, but she made no sound. Prince Lear stood between her body and the bull, weaponless, but with his hands up as though they still held a sword and shield. Once more in the endless night, the prince said, no. He looked very foolish and he was about to be trampled flat. The red bull could not see him and would kill him without ever knowing that he'd been in the way. Wonder and love and great sorrow shook Smendrick and mag the magician then and came together inside him and filled him, filled him until he felt himself brimming and flowing with something that was none of these. He did not, he did not believe it, but it came to him anyway. As it had touched him twice before and left him more barren than he had been, this time, there was too much of it for him to hold. It spilled through his skin, sprang from his fingers and toes, welled up equally in his eyes and his hair in the hollows of his shoulders. There was too much to hold, too much ever to use, and still he found himself weeping with the pain of the impossible greed. He thought or said or sang, I don't know that I was so empty to be so full. The Lady Amalthea lay where she had fallen, though now she was trying to rise, and Prince Lear still guarded her, raising his naked hands against the enormous shape that loomed over him. The tip of the prince's tongue stuck out of one corner of his mouth, making him look like a serious child taking something apart. Long years later, when Smendrick's name had become a greater name than Nico's, or worse than a feat surrendered at the sound of it, he was never able to work the smallest magic without seeing Prince Lear before him, his eyes squinted up because of the brightness and his tongue sticking out. The red bull stamped again, and Prince Lear fell on his face and got up bleeding. The bull's rumble began, and the blind, bloated head started down, lowering like one half of the scales of doom. Lear's 
Lear's virulent heart hung between the pale horns, as good as dripping from their tips, himself as good as smashed and scattered, and his mouth buckled a little, but he never moved. The sound of the bull grew louder as the horns went down. Then Smedrick stepped into the open and said a few words. They were short words, undistinguished either by melody or harshness. And Smedrick himself could not hear them for the Red Bull's dreadful bawling. But he knew what they meant, and he knew exactly how to say them. And he knew that he, had, that he could say them again when he wanted to, in the same way or in a different way. Now he spoke them gently and with joy. And as he did so, he felt his immortality fall from him like armor or like a shroud. At the first words of the spell, the Lady Amalthea gave a thin, bitter cry. She reached out again to Prince Lear, but he had his back to her, protecting her, and he did not hear. Molly grew, heartsick, caught at Smendrick's arm, but the magician spoke on. Yet even when the wonder blossomed where she had been, sea white, sea white, and boundless beautiful as a bull was mighty, still the Lady Amalthea clung to herself for a moment more. She was no longer there, and yet her face hovered like a breath in the cold, reeky light. It would have been better if Prince Lear had not turned until she was gone, but he turned. He saw the unicorn, and she shone in him as in a glass, but it was to the other that he called, to the castaway, to the Lady Amalthea. His voice was the end of her. She vanished when he cried her name, as though he had crowned for the day. Things happen both swiftly and slowly, as they do in dreams, where it's really the same thing. The unicorn stood very still, looking at them all out of lost, elsewhere eyes. She seemed even more beautiful than Smendrick remembered, for no one can keep a unicorn in his head for long. And yet, she was not there as she had been, no more than he was. Molly grew stared towards her, speaking softly and foolishly, but the unicorn gave no sign that she knew her. The marvelous horn remained dull as a rain. With a roar that set the walls of his lair belling out and crackling like a circus canvas, the red bull charged for the second time. The unicorn fled across the cave into the darkness. Prince Lear, in turning, had stepped a little one to the side, and before he could wheel back again, the bull's plunging pursuit smashed him down, stunned, with his mouth open. Molly would have gone to him, but Smendrick took hold of her and dragged her along after the bull and the unicorn. Neither beast was in sight, but the tunnel still thundered from their desperate passage. Dazed and bewildered, Molly stumbled beside the fierce stranger who would neither let her fall nor slacken her pace. Over her head and all around, she could feel the castle growing, creaking in the rock like a loosening tooth. The witch's rhyme jangled in her memory over and over. Yet none but one of Hagsgate Town may bring the castle swirling down. Suddenly, it was sand slowing their feet, and the smell of the sea, as cold as the other smell, but so good, so friendly, that they both stopped running and laughed aloud. Above them, on a cliff, King Haggard's castle splayed up towards a gray-green morning sky, splashed with thin, milky clouds. Molly was sure that the king himself must be watching them from one of the tremulous towers. 
but she couldn't see him. A few stars still fluttered in the heavy blue sky over the water. The tide was out, and the bald beach had the gray, wet gleam of a strip shellfish. But far down the strand, the sea was bending like a bow, and Molly knew that the ebb had ended. The unicorn and the red bull stood facing each other at the arch of the bow, and the unicorn's back was to the sea. The bull moved in slowly, not charging, but pressing her, almost gently towards the water, never touching her. She did not resist him. Her horn was dark, and her head was down, and the bull was as much her master as he had been on the plains of Hagsgate before she became the Lady Amalfia. It might have been that hopeless dawn except for the sea. Yet, she was not altogether beaten. She backed away until one hind foot actually stepped into the water. At that, she sprang through the sullen smolder of the red bull and ran away along the beach, so swift and light that the wind of her passing blew her footprints off the sand. The bull went after her. Do something, a hoarse voice said to Smendrick, as Molly had said it long ago. Prince Lear stood behind him, his face bloody and his eyes mad. He looked like King Haggard. Do something, he said. You have power. You changed her into a unicorn. Do something now to save her. I will kill you if you don't. He showed the magician his hands. I cannot, Smendrick answered him quietly. Not all the magic in the world can help her now. If she will not fight him, she must go into the sea with the others. Neither magic nor murder will help her. Molly heard small waves slapping on the sand. The tide was beginning to turn. She saw no unicorns tumbling in the water, though she looked for them, willing them to be there. What if it's too late? What if they drifted out into the last ebb tide, out to the deepest sea where the no ships go? because of the kraken and the sea drake, and because of the floating jungles of wreck that tangle and drown ever these, even these. She will never find them then. Will she stay with me? <sighs> then what is magic for? Prince Lear demanded wildly. What use is wizardly if it cannot save a unicorn? He gripped the magician's shoulder hard to keep him from falling. Smendrick did not turn his head. With a touch of sad mockery in his voice, he said, that's what heroes are for. They could not see the unicorn for the hugeness of the bull, but suddenly she doubled on her track and came flying up the beach toward them. Blind and patient as a sea, the red bull followed her, his hoof grouging great ditches in the damp sand. Smoke and fire, spray and storm, they came on together, neither one gaining. The prince leer gave a soft grunting understanding. Yes, of course, he said. That's exactly what heroes are for. Wizards make no difference, so they say that nothing does, but heroes are meant to die for unicorns. He let go of Smendrick's shoulder, shoulder, smiling to himself. There's a basic fallacy in your reasoning, Smendrick began indignantly, but the prince never heard what he was saying. The unicorn flashed by them, her breath streaming blue-white and her head carried too high, and Prince Lear leaped into the path of the red bull. For a moment, he disappeared entirely, like a feather in a flame. But the bull ran over him and left him lying on the ground. One side of his face cuddled too hard into the sand, and one leg kicked it in the air three times before it stopped. He fell without a cry, and Smendrick and Molly alike were stricken as silent as he, but the unicorn turned. The red bull halted when she did and wheeled to put her once more between himself and the sea. 
He began his mincing, dancing advance again, but he might have been a courting bird for all the attention the unicorn paid him. She stood motionless, staring at the twisted body of Prince Lear. The tide was grumbling in hard now, and the beach was already a slice narrower. Whitecaps and Skipper's daughters spilled up into the sprawling dawn, but Molly Grew still saw no other unicorn but her own. Over the castle, the sky was scarlet, and on the highest tower, King Haggard stood up as clear and black as a winter tree. They can see the straight scar on his mouth and his nails darkening as he gripped the parapet. But the castle could not fall now. Only Lear could have made it fall. Suddenly, the unicorn screamed. It was not at all like the challenging bell with which she had first met the Red Bull. It was an ugly, squawking wall of sorrow and loss and rage, such as no immortal creature ever gave. The castle quaked, and King Haggard shrank back with one arm across his face, and the bull hesitated, shuffling in the sand, lowing doubtfully. The unicorn cried out again and reared up like a skimitar. The sweet sweep of her body made Molly close her eyes, but she opened them again in time to see the unicorn leap at the red bull, and the bull swerve out of her way. The unicorn's horn was light again, burning and shivering like a butterfly. Again she charged, and again the bull gave ground, heavy with perplexity, but still quick as a flash. His own horns were the color and likeness of lightning, and the slightest swing of his head made her stagger. But he retreated and retreated, backing steadily down the beach. As she had done, she lunged after him, driving to kill, but she cannot reach him. She might have been stabbing at a shadow or a memory. So the Red Bull fell back without giving battle until she had stalked him into the water's edge. There he made a stand, with the surf swirling about his hooves and the sand rushing under them. He would neither fight nor fly, and she knew now that she could never destroy him. Still, she set herself for another charge while he muttered, wondering in his throat. For Molly grew, the world hung motionless in the glass moment. She thought she was standing on a higher tower than King Haggard's. She looked down on a pale pairing of a land where a toy man and a woman stared with their knitted eyes at a clay bull and a tiny ivory unicorn, abandoned playthings. There was a doll, too, half buried, and a sandcastle with a stick king propped up like one turret. The tide would take it all in a moment, and nothing would be left but the flaccid birds at the beach hopping in circles. Then, Smendrick shook her back to his side, saying, Molly. Far out to sea, the combers were coming in, the long, heavy rollers curling over white across their green hearts, tearing themselves to smoke on the sandbars and the slimy rocks, rasping up the beach with a sound like fire. The birds flew up in yelling clumps, their strident outrage lost in the cry of the waves and the pines. And in the whiteness of the whiteness, flowing in the tattered water, their bodies, their bodies arched with the streaked marble hollows of the waves, their manes and tails and the fragile beards of the males burning in the sunlight, their eyes as dark and jeweled as a deep sea, and they're shining their horns, the seashell shining of the horns, the horns came riding in like a rainbow mass of silver ships. But they would not come to land while the bull was there. 
They rolled in the shallows, swirling together as madly, as frightened as fish when the nets are being hauled up. No longer with the sea, but losing it. Hundreds were born in each swell and hurled against the ones already struggling to keep from being shoved ashore. And they, in their turn, struck out desperately, rearing and stumbling, stretching their long, cloudy necks far back. The unicorn lowered her head one last time and hurled herself at the red bull. If he had been either true flesh or a windy ghost, the blow would have burst him like rotten fruit. But he turned away unnoticing and walked slowly into the sea. The unicorns in the water floundered wildly to let him by, stamping and slashing the surf into a rolling mist which their horns turned rainbow, but on the beach and atop the cliff and up and down through all of Haggard's kingdom, the land sighed when his weight had passed from it. He strode out a long way before he began to swim. The hugest waves broke no higher than his hucks, and the timid tide ran away from him. But when at last he let himself sink into the flood, when the great surge of the sea stood up behind him, a green and black swell as deep and smooth as hard as wind, it gathered in silence, folding from one horizon to the other. From a moment it actually hit the bull's humped shoulders and sloping back. Smendrick lifted the dead prince, and he and Molly ran until the cliff face stopped them. The wave fell like a cloudburst of chains. Then the unicorns came out of the sea. Molly never saw them clearly. They were a light leaping toward her and a cry that dazzled her eyes. She was wise enough to know that no mortal was ever meant to see all the unicorns in the world. And she tried to find her own unicorn and look at only her. But there were too many of them, and they were all too beautiful. Blind as the bull, she moved to meet them, holding out her arms. The unicorns would surely have run her down, as the red bull had trampled Prince Lear, for they were mad with freedom. But Smendrick spoke, and they streamed to the right and left Amali and Lear and himself, some even springing over them as the sea shatters on a rock and then comes together, whirling again. All around Molly, there flowed and flowered a light as impossible as snow and set afire, while thousands of cloven hooves sang by like cymbals. She stood very still, neither whipping, weeping nor laughing, for her joy was too great for her body to understand. Look up, Smendrick said. The castle is falling. She turned and saw that the towers were melting as the unicorns sprang up the cliff and flowed around them, exactly as though they had been made out of sand and the sea were sliding in. The castle came down in great cold chunks that turned thin and waxen as they swirled in the air until they disappeared. It crumbled and vanished without a sound and left no ruins, either on land or in the memories of the two who watched it tall fall. A moment later, they could not even remember where it stood or how it looked. But King Haggard, who was quite real, fell down through the wreckage of his disenchanted castle like a knife dropped through the clouds. Molly heard him laugh once, as though he'd expected it. Very little ever surprised King Haggard. Thanks for joining me. What a ride, right? Such a good book. Oh, my God. So happy you joined me. I love this story so much. Um, tell a friend, leave a review, blah, blah, blah. I love you. 
See you tomorrow. Peace.